TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with designer and illustrator Mirko Illich about his early career behind the Iron Curtain, his later career in New York, and why it may be good for designers to stick with what they're best at. But it's boring. And I didn't become artist to be bored by myself. If it's boring to me, how boring must be to people who consume that? Here's Debbie Millman. You think you know a guy, but then the past resurfaces and you realize you didn't really know him at all. That's been my experience of Mirko Illich, the Bosnian-born graphic designer whose striking work I've been following for many years in the New York Times and in various and sundry magazines. He's also a colleague of mine at the School of Visual Arts, where he teaches illustration. But now there's a monograph of his work out called Fist to Face. It's really a visual biography sketching back to his days as a comics artist in the former Yugoslavia. He was, it is now clear to me, a prodigy and a prodigious innovator. Fist to Face was written in Croatian by Dejan Kursik, and it has now been translated into English and amended by Aaron Kennedy. Aaron and Mirko are both here in the studio. So Mirko, from what I understand, when you were a very little boy, your mother had a sewing machine and lots of crayons for drawing on fabric. One day, you picked up one of those crayons when it had fallen down, and after many hours of sewing, your mother stood up and saw a drawing of Santa Claus on the floor. Since there was nobody else in the house, it meant that you had done it. And from what I understand, she was in total shock, asked if you did it, and when you said yes, she covered the drawing with a piece of carpet to preserve it and show to your father. And now I know that you feel that the importance of that moment was so significant for a number of reasons. She didn't yell, and usually you said you got yelled at, and that you understood that you had done something great and something for your parents to preserve. And is it true that you still joke about it and that you're looking to this day for art directors who, when, they, when you give them a drawing, they'll cover it with a piece of carpet? Yes. Uh, <laughs> world's longest question, world's shortest yes, answer. Yes, first sounds like I was living with Tim Gunn, kind of <laughs> sewing and all. But uh, and I, I must correct you uh, about yelling. They didn't yell much. Oh, they that's were, not what were, I've read. They will just beat me up. Oh, okay. usually, <laughs> and I'm not even joking about that. <laughs> I know, I know. Actually, I read that, and yes. I didn't want to include it because I didn't want to bum you out. Why should you bum me up? Because that's a sad thing. To be beaten up by your parents? Yeah. I don't think so necessary. Why? Because sooner or later you're stronger and you can fight back. But that's another story. Okay. Um, <laughs> part two. Part two. Coming next week. <laughs> no, uh, first, 
I don't know if that was Santa Claus. That's, Mirko, that's Mirko, my mother's is... conclusion. That's my mother's oh, conclusion. It could have been a garden gnome. Who knows what? Or maybe it was not creature at all, but she concluded that. That was the interesting part. She told me later it was Santa Claus. I have no idea. I just know when my father came home, and he was a military guy, you know, in uniform and whatever, all tough. She uncovered that, and there was whispering. That was actually the nicest part. There was whispering and pointing in my direction. And I was thinking either is something great or I'm going to end up in mental institution. <laughs> Turn out I didn't end up in mental institution. And also that act actually was encouraging to me. Was that feedback that your parents gave you at that age for doing that kind of work, how did that influence what you wanted to become? First, I think I had typical artist family very abusive and tough father and very protective mother. And then you are in between those two, try to play both of them somehow and please both of them. And I think somehow when you look, most of artists have some history of that kind. And because I was what you call a son of the soldier who was moving constantly, we moved from town to town, from region to region. And in Yugoslavia, that meant you go in a place where they speak totally different language, when they're totally different religion, totally different costumes. And I was a single kid. I would walk in a school. And pretty much first day or two, I needed to beat up somebody. To prove that. To, to be left alone. And in that process, I think kind of like drawing, detailed drawing is escape because you sit and you like entertain yourself. So the title of your current book, the monograph on your work, is called Fist to Face. Does that have anything to do with that early need to declare your authority by beating people up? No, I, I didn't beat up people just because I felt like it's just when somebody comes in your face, you protect yourself. But the title, I don't know, I didn't invent that title. You can ask Aaron. And uh Aaron is editor of the book, and he decided to publish this book. And I know it sounds a little bit obnoxious, but Aaron can tell you, I didn't read the book yet. I know some parts of the book, but I didn't read the book. It's so embarrassing to me to read the book, except in big type. Whatever was some quote, I read all quotes because big type, I pay attention. Well, it's, it's quite an extraordinary book. It is written by Dan... Dan Kršić. Thank you. Don't, don't worry. It's hard for me to pronounce. Aaron, talk a little bit about how you came upon this, this venture, this initiative. It's quite a large book. It is absolutely beautiful. It features Mirko's work from the time he was a very small boy creating comics all the way through to the identity work that he's doing for global hotels and brands. So talk a little bit about how this book came to be. Before I even met Mirko, before I think I was even editor at Print Magazine, I came across the original Croatian version, and I just thought it was a beautiful book. It was produced beautifully. The art was obviously amazing. I, I wanted to know who this artist was, and I really valued this book that I couldn't read a single word of, right, because it was in Croatian. So I put it on the shelf, and I would just flip through it now and then and, and see this stern-looking guy in the back who I was like, that guy looks serious, you know? And was that Dan or Mirko? And, uh, <laughs> that was Mirko. <laughs> and then um, I, I got to be editor-in-chief of Print Magazine, and we started a book division. And um, I remember going with Mirko to Belgrade for a festival called the Mixer Festival, which is a very interesting gathering of people down by these two rivers right in the sort of off the, the main downtown area in Belgrade. And they had reprinted this this book and they had printed it in, in English. But truth be told, and I think Mirko would, would admit, it was a really poor translation and it had been done very quickly to do a very short run. And I thought, wow, here's this book again. And obviously I had met the subject and, and I thought, well, here's an opportunity to, to do it right. So I feel really blessed to have worked on it and gotten to know Mirko uh, over the course of the, of the time together. Now, I also got to know Mirko over the course of reading the book. Um, one of the things that I read in the book was how, Mirko, you began drawing as an escape against loneliness, that you were an only child and you moved around a lot and you knew that as soon as you became friends with someone, you would soon have to part. So drawing was actually your best friend. Would you look back on, on the work that you did in your early years as an artist, as a cartoonist, and as a designer as dark? I was living in a communist country. 
slightly better than Russia. Uh, it was communism light, but still was communism. I had passport. I travel, but there was no money to travel. Because of all these elements, uh, somehow lack of good television, especially in the beginning with lack of good movies, I was my best entertainment. Later I discovered girls, but that's another story. Because of that, I will sit and just draw. And because I'm drawing for myself, I will give myself tasks. How many hours I was supposed to sit and draw that drawing? How many? And obviously, if you draw really long and you use black ink, of course it's going to become dark on the Did end. you have any training at that point? How did uh, you learn how to draw Santa Claus or whoever that was that you were it's, drawing? It's, uh, it, I don't know. It's like kind of like you teach yourself. Then mm, I, then not I, really. No, no. No, I, I think that's that's mystique which doesn't work. If you – whoever, whoever, if person stand in front of mirror every day and try to draw themselves for one hour, in uh, three months they're going to draw somebody who look like them. Once when they learn how to draw themselves, they can draw almost anybody. It's just question to not quit. Is, is that question, if my mother grabbed the wet rag and wiped out that uh, Santa Claus, maybe I will be today engineer or mathematician or who knows what else. Being encouraged and encouraging yourself, yes, I can do it, yes, I can do it. Practice. Drawing is practice. I draw really badly today because I didn't draw for a long, long time. My hand doesn't listen to me today. I don't want to be contentious, Mirko, but are you saying that your talent came from habitually drawing over and over again? No, my talent first came from becoming lazy. I practiced many, many days of drawing. When I was doing comics, we had competition, me and my friends, who can you know, draw longer, like day and a half, two days without sleeping and things like that. Then I discover I'm wasting my time sitting over, over paper. And then I discover for me it's easier to think eight hours and draw two hours than opposite. And I can get much better better results. I can go in movie theater and pretend I'm thinking. I can watch television. Oh, I'm just working on something. <laughs> and because I was also mass producing things, I figured out how with my brain I can save whatever I was not able to do right or finish right. And suddenly, I think that's how Malevich came, came up with the black square on the black. Probably he spilled the ink and then just covered up or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, then I started... His mother covered it up with carpet. <laughs> yes. And uh, because of that, I started then to be kind of like more lazy, less rendering, but more concept. I became bored because I was almost able to slip and my hand can draw without me. Well, it's so interesting because your work does have, especially the early work, is so incredibly realistic. But it also has this big layer of conceptual thinking embedded in it, which is what I think makes it so remarkable. Yeah, but also there is something what, unfortunately, and that was one of the biggest problems, and Aaron can tell you about translating book, uh, was symbols. And history behind that work, and whatever you saw, like see, like conceptual work in some of the drawings, actually, there are at least two levels, because you needed to create something, but look okay for everybody, but those slightly brighter, they're gonna know your teasing system, they're gonna read the codes in between lines. There is always something under that because you're trying to like also fight the system despite working for system. Right. And that is like where is nice part. That's where I start to think. Aaron, so talk about some of those translation challenges. How did you manage that? I think when Mirko was younger and they were working all these student newspapers, there was a lot of subversiveness going on in a a fun way. It was almost like you're going to let us do this. You're going to pay us to actually run this newspaper, but we're going to we're going to tweak you. We're going we're gonna to be rebels, but we're going to use the tools you've given us to be rebels. So that's kind of carried on through Mirko's life. And I think one of the things that's most interesting and why I think Mirko is a really talented art director and sort of brand thinker is because he thinks conceptually about it. So you know, you're, you're talking about three or four different levels of, of having to translate what somebody was doing. So I'd see a, a cartoon or, or a comic strip or a, a cover of something and, and I really would have to – I'd have to call him up and ask him what, what he meant. And there would be a long story about everything and that happened a lot. You know, you're talking about a different time too when, when 
things were very different when it came to arts and how to express arts. And so some things may have just – I don't know if the American audience will truly understand all of them. But the goal was really to sort of bring Mirko and Mirko's work, not so much the political stuff, to the, to the fore. So if any of that maybe got left on the cutting floor – you know, sometimes we had to we'll sacrifice blame you. that. Okay. You can blame me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's go through. Let's just take a little journey back into your early work, Mirko. You published your first comic in February of 1976 in Studensky List. Why comics? What What first took you to comics? I actually published before that my illustration, some of my illustrations, but that was insignificant. Also. I was so naive. I gave them a bunch of drawings. I didn't even sign them. I know. Because of that, they published them without credit. And then you'd see them in the paper without any credit. I really didn't care. I wanted to see them in paper. That was number one. I published my first comic, and I started doing comics with a group of people because you didn't need that assignment. You didn't need editorial article or whatever. We was able to sit and create our own comics, which when we wrote, we draw, and... Then I was walking around with those comics, offering them to different youth papers until one of them decided to publish that. At that time, I was still going to school. I was in high school, art high school. And, uh, you know, I started working. And I remember I was in art high school by the end of my fifth year. I lasted five years. I, last year, I didn't even come in school because I was all overwhelmed with the amount of work. That was kind of nice thing. And that was a result of that comics. So Polet, which was the weekly newspaper of the Socialist Youth of Croatia, began publishing in the fall of 1976. And you were invited not only to submit your own work in issue number seven, you were also invited to become the editor of comics and illustrations, which really meant that you drew and edited everything yourself. Not really. First, I, I helped establish that paper. Then I walk away. But also, I publish quite a lot of other people. In percentage, I was trying to be kind of nice and fair, and lots of people publish much more than me because I will spend my time fighting system that will sit at home and draw. But it was a nice experience because you learn how to sell the thing because I think most of artists, designers have problem not creating art but to sell art. What do you to, mean? To convince whoever is your client why is that good. And how were you able to do that? Uh, because I will have this constant headbutting with apparatchiks from, you know, like system, with editors, with writers, and, and there was all, all way older than I. And I very soon learned how I must look, how I must walk in, how threatening I must looking in my eyes to not have them questioning because I was totally insecure, like every decent artist. But you walk in, like you're going to like destroy all communism together with Stalin, and they pay attention. Interesting that, that you say that about the look in your eye, because Eric Seidman, the art director at Discover and Money, stated that when you first visited him in the United States, you came unannounced, and that if it weren't for your portfolio, he wouldn't have been able to tell if you were an artist or a murderer based on the look in your eye. So did you practice that look? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the look which I practice. Also, I brought killer work. <laughs> no, but How long it, have you been waiting to say that? <laughs> no, I didn't, actually. I, I, love, I love sometime inspiration. No, because it's very important, and, and, and I teach in this building a few floors below, and I'm trying to explain to my kids why you cannot sit in my class with baseball hat. And what do you tell them? There is a few things. First, your eyes, they're your communication. With baseball hat, I don't see your eyes. Uh, second, they will laugh, thinking I'm crazy if I walk with open umbrella in the room, but it's okay to sit with hat because it's going to rain, be in sun or something. But they don't care. They don't want to take hat off. Except when I explain them, you walk with your hat like that in any decent meeting room, your price drop for 20% immediately. Oh, yeah. If they even hire you. Yes. And that's where... It comes off. Off. And that means when you walk in on presentation, how you have your portfolio prepared, how you start to talk. The moment when door open, you start to sell your work. And that is what you need to learn. It's really, really important. How did you learn it? 
my best explanation is like you work like day and night on something. It's your child. You bring to the some kind of board of directors your little baby and you push up front and you think child gonna talk on its own. You don't need to help. They're just gonna go, oh my God. But they go, hmm, can you cut hand off and add another <laughs> eye and maybe we can twist the head and and you go, my child, my child. Doesn't work. You must have story to protect their child. As you're doing it, you must think, oh, if they ask me about this, I'm going to tell them this. If they ask me about, you must have all this be ready story. If you say, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, you're gone. Well, it seems like it's a really political way of positioning your work. And Paulette, this this weekly newspaper that you were working on at the ripe old age of maybe 20, it was sponsored by the government, which meant that by your working there, in many ways, you were also part of the structure, and yet it was incredibly political. How did you manage doing highly political work during a highly political time for a government-sponsored magazine? Oh, government will come in and storm us, like people was flying out. We'll have, you got thrown out a couple of times, Oh, yeah, didn't we you? had conflicts, we had fights, but it's, it's, it's a nice because you know you're doing for cause. You know you're doing for something. One of the good examples, somewhere there is photography, my punk stage when I was all in leather and whatever. Safety pins. Yeah. My my group got one of the biggest government awards for young artists and was live TV show. And I came to receive award and I was with leather jacket and all this crap on me. When I walked out, they cut the show and started music from studio because they didn't know what's going to happen. Now, was this when you were part of Novi Kvadrat? Yeah, Kvadrat, yeah. That was comics group. And they got in shock. But what we managed to do as a group and as a paper, uh, we got young kids on our side. And our magazine, which was youth magazine, was read by top intellectuals and actually was read more than official magazines. And then suddenly, most famous writers, more f- most famous journalists, start to write for youth magazine because we kind of like push the borders and there was suddenly a little bit more space and freedom for something decent to be written. And then, of course, they kick us all out. So this was also around the time you first saw the work of Milton Glaser, who impressed you most because, as you stated, he drew a little bit this way, he drew a little bit that way. And this was different than anything you had seen before. At that point of time, I started to have influence of many people on my illustration. How did you uh, first even find out about Milton Glaser? I was hitchhiking. First, we had one single bookshop selling foreign books in a whole republic. Wow. One single bookshop uh, where we will go and spend hours trying to memorize every picture because books that was way too expensive to even buy. Let's say to buy Grafis annually in 1971, I needed to give my monthly salary. Wow. You know, then you go there and you flip and you flip and you flip. That's how I came across in 1972 of illustration called Junkie by Brad Holland. And that's when I decide I'm going to be a political illustrator. That one single illustration of Brad Holland flipped me over. And uh, I later was extremely fortunate to hire Brad Holland to work for me when I was in up at page of New York Times. That must have been an extraordinary feeling. Talk yes. about that. No, it's amazing because we all stand on somebody's shoulders. You see, I'm very uncomfortable with my book because I think that book needs to be written by somebody else later if I deserve. We are not in situation anymore and it's not right to build Tutankhamun pyramids for ourselves. We must build them for people before us who brought us where we are. And that was for me, Brad Holland. Other one was I went in Belgrade to visit a friend of mine, and he had first book of Milton Glaser. And I spent it all night flipping pages and not believing that's the same person because we still have idea of style and, and, and whatever, and Milton didn't care for that. And that was my liberation because I hated styles. I was thinking the restraining, I think you have style when you don't know how to do better. Well, you've said that the idea must determine the form and not the opposite. Exactly, because you cannot have same drawing style, let's say in case of Milton, drawing a cover for uh, Bob Dylan and for Bach. Kind of doesn't work together. And because of that, I was totally liberated 
But because of that, I had revenge over Milton. Actually, <laughs> few. One is his name is on cover of my book. And second, he was one of the first people who I visited when I came in New York. Well, you came and visited him pretty much unannounced. From what I understand, you you, you had a small introduction by none other than Gloria Steinem. That um, was the only person I was knowing in New York. Not a bad person to know back then. So this was, what, 1986 86. is when you first came uh, to the United States. March 25th. And so you knew Gloria from some type of protest? Uh, through feminist movement, because I was involved in feminist movement, believe it or not. So in March of 1986, at the age of 30, after 10 years as an artist, illustrator, and designer in Yugoslavia, you decide to move to the United States. This was after a career that, Mirko, some would take lifetimes to accomplish what you did before the time you were 30, but you left it all behind. You decided to go to New York City, never having ever been there before, and only knowing just a little bit, Gloria Steinem, um, no art director, no client. No English. Yeah. No English. No portfolio. You had a box of yeah. work. So so what made you decide at 30 you had given up comics, you had given up Paulette, you had given up Donas, you had given up Panorama, all of this work that you'd been doing prior to coming to the United States, you gave it all up and decided, I'm going to make my career now in the United States. Because I worked with all these youth things, political things, and I worked with lots of bands. I did the designs, even wrote some songs and whatever for some of the leading bands. I was relatively known. Yes. But because of that, I was able to party for the rest of my life, never creating another piece of work and nobody will not notice. So you would have just been resting on your laurels? Exactly. And I was only 30. Or I know. Actually, I was 25 when I started. And I wanted really some challenges. And in all these <clears throat> ideas, what to do with, thinking what to do with myself, I started trying to do uh, theater sets. I tried a little bit of everything. I decide I need to move. I tried first Italy. It didn't work really well for me. Really nice people, but not much work. And uh, then I decide to move somewhere where I can, like, try to show what I can really do. And somehow, because of that, Grafis and Brett Holland and Milton Glaser and everybody else turned out to be New York. <clears throat> so a few days after you arrived in New York, with only this little box of work and a recommendation from people that you worked with at Panorama, the Italian mm -hmm. mag news magazine. You visited Time magazine. You just visited. And less than a week or so later, you were asked to... Uh, Actually, same day. Same day. For next week, I was supposed to produce things. A sketch Debbie, for a cover. Are you seeing a trend here, though? I mean, Mirko just shows up and he gets work. And, and I would just say something on the heels of what you said earlier. It does matter the quality of work you bring to show. No matter how you're dressed or the look on your face, if you show good work, you know, you're going to get more attention. And I, I, don't, I think Mirko undersells himself a little bit. It, he obviously showed amazing work, and that's why he was getting these great jobs without any recommendations and just showing up that day. Now, Mirko, you come to the United States. You're 30 years old. You don't have a portfolio. You have a ponytail. You don't really speak much Actually, English. Actually, one side shorter, one longer. That's how. Okay, that so you had like a punk ponytail. You go to Time magazine before any place else. I mean, because you don't I'm, even do a Because I'm foreigner. And so you think, okay, I'm just going to go to the best. I'm going no, to go I'm to going the, to the, the top. I'm the going top. to the top. And people will say, oh, no, you cannot do that. Why? Why I need to work my way up? I never understood that idea. I came in this country with, in my head, list. Time magazine, New York Times, Playboy, Washington Post. That's pretty much was like the best in my head. And I started exactly that way. I don't know if this is exactly correct in terms of the number of days, but from what I was able to glean from fist to face is not even 10 days after you arrived in New York City, you went and knocked on Milton's door with just this little box of work. Um, you just laid your work on his table. Now, you just knocked on the door? Yeah. I mean, like, but, knock, uh, knock, hi. But, uh, hi, Milton. But My name's Mirko. Gloria you, recommended me. You, you can knock on Milton's door, doors even today. Yeah. Oh, you know, Milton's going to kill you for no. saying that. No, no. But you see, there is something nice about Milton and people like him. If you are big enough, if you are really big enough, you can afford to be good. I knock on his door. My English was pretty much 
combination of parts of the songs, which one I know, you know, kind of like... <laughs> love, I, I, love, we do. <laughs> I didn't sing that, you know. I think that would not work with him. But, and he was extremely sweet. He went through all this mess, piling up things and separating and everything and asking me questions like, do I know this? Do I know that? Do I know, let's say, if, I, if you get the job, where are you going to work? What are you going to do drawing? And I said, anywhere, you know, bench, I don't care, McDonald, whatever. I think you even said the floor of the bathroom of the apartment you were uh, working whatever. in. Yeah. And he said to me, if you get any job and you need space, I always have extra table. You can come anytime in my office and use extra table. Now, Mirko, as much as I actually love, adore, and worship Milton Glaser and believe every single thing that you're saying... I can't imagine that he would have said that to just anybody. I think that he was, my guess is, pretty astounded at the quality of your work. But also that was 20-something years ago. I was young and beautiful. (laughs) This is true, actually. (laughs) I did see pictures. You were quite beautiful. Whatever was his reason, he offered me that. And then he told me to come next day and ask his secretary, she's going to give me a list yeah. of art directors with telephone numbers. And then next to some... <laughs> who, who, who does this? Milton Glaser. Yeah, but for next every, to doesn't some, do it for everybody, Mirko. And he, to next to them, he put it, a little marking. That was people who called he or his secretary to tell them, this young guy going to come, doesn't speak English, but is worth it. Uh, there is story to it. Uh, approximately eight years later, now we're already friends. He already know me. He regretted he ever opened the <laughs> door to me or Why? anything. You ask him. <laughs> uh, he, we are talking, and I said, you remember you offered me once table. Milton, quite bright guy, pulled a little bit back and said, yeah, what do you want? I said, can I have floor? And that's how I got floor. <laughs> so you're on the third <laughs> fourth, floor, fourth, fourth floor, floor, of, floor of the Art yes. is Work building. Yes. And... After that, person, first person to visit was Steve Heller. And you see, I have them both on the cover. I do. I see. Uh, because you probably don't know, and, and at that time it was a slightly different time. When you come out of airport, they will ask you what you do, profession. And when you say, I'm illustrator or designer, they will give you a business card of uh, Steve Heller. So <laughs> just go to Steve Heller. Just go to Steve Heller. Anyway, they I, still do that. Yeah, they still do that. I end up with Steve Heller in the New York Times. And uh, that was my first illustration, overnight illustration, which I draw in the United States, except my first one published was op-ed page illustration because he was assigning illustration for a couple of weeks ahead, but Gerald Krauss will publish them immediately tomorrow. And actually, my first published illustration is op-ed page of New York Times. And you then became uh, the art director of the New York Times op-ed page. Yes. But that wasn't until about 91 or 92, no, I yes, believe. Yes. And that was after you had spent six months as the art director of the international edition of Time magazine. Yeah, I was working under Rudolf Hoglund. I actually punished every of these guys who gave me work. Yes. And you, I think, achieved every single one of the goals on your list, except maybe Playboy. Is that true? Oh, that, that is a funny story. It's like very uh, – I'm coming from a different country. We don't know what is politically correct. I must apologize immediately. I'm not very politically correct in some aspects. But anyway uh, – in 1970-something, Playboy had amazing interviews and most amazing illustrations. Brett Holland, Milton Glaser, Marshall Arisman, whoever comes on your mind of great artists was working there. And I was probably one of the few young males looking Playboy straight, not sideways. I just was having different kind of porn on my mind. But I didn't know that is published in Chicago. You see, for me... From Yugoslavia, either is New York or L.A. Nothing else doesn't exist in between. Many years after I arrived in this country, I mentioned that somewhere, how I publish everywhere except in Playboy. And it was really sweet because a month after that, I got called from Playboy. They said, you would like to work for us? And I did a series of illustrations. As a matter of fact, they even published my photography in Playboy. Wow. I was they didn't ask me to take clothes off. Just <laughs> And what about The New Yorker? I noticed that you included an unpublished cover of The New Yorker in Fist to Face, but I didn't see too that's, much. That's only unpublished. I, I, I published one single illustration maybe in New Yorker uh, because 
I work by assignment. I'm, I'm mercenary. In what way? In every way. <laughs> uh, between uh, drawing illustration or not drawing, I can always choose to not draw, to do something else. And to draw, to push myself to draw, somebody must tell me size, deadline, subject. To sit and think like, oh, I can do anything. Let's invent what can be covered this time. I'm really bad at that. And that's the way the New Yorker likes to Yes, and, and that's why and, and, and I have deep appreciation for what they did. And I, I even that's probably only an unpublished work in whole book because I just want to include it how I tried that too. It's not like – and I don't think it's something special or good, but I tried. So, Aaron, how hard or difficult was it to decide what to include in Fist to Face? Because – I'm going to just take a random guess. I'm going to say maybe there are 600, 800 illustrations in this book. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable. How did you decide what to include and what not to include? Well, you know, we remember we started with a with a book that had already been published. So there was a, a template. But you uh, even changed the name. So I'm going yes. to assume yeah. that it's quite a different book. It, it, it's actually remarkably similar. We updated it. We modified it and finessed it. But I would say that for the most part, it's pretty true to what was in the book before, but there's a lot of work that Mirko had done in the time that the last one had come out to now that we wanted to include. Uh, there was some projects that just felt like they'd appeal to a Western audience more. You know, we had some struggles and battles over some things to pull in, you know, to pull out and some to put battles in. Battles with who? Did you and Mirko have, have fist fights about what to include? Fist to face. That's where the title came from. <laughs> um, I provided fist. <laughs> 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 he I'm did. He did. He did. I would not have imagined it any other way. You know, it was really funny. Mirko said at the very beginning, "I don't want to be involved in this book." He did. You said that, and I worked so I worked with Dan. And but you know, Dan's in in Serbia and all over the world, and very hard to communicate with people when they're that far away. And uh, eventually, because Mirko was right down the street, and I had to call him to ask him about certain things, we started to develop a rapport about how and what would be in the book. And so then all of a sudden Dan wanted to be involved. So then Ooh. I bit off way more than I could chew and I had three Serbians coming at me all the time with different ideas about what should be and what should not be in it. Um, but I think we reached a pretty nice compromise. Now, there are a few spreads in Fist to Face that show cover illustrations you did on the covers of magazines including, and this is a small, short list, Manhattan Inc., U.S. News and World Report, Money, Business Tokyo, Management Review, AMA Personnel, Macintosh, Restaurant Business, Connoisseur, Sports Inc., Psychology Today, New York Magazine, Diplomat, Chicago Magazine, Print, Stanford Magazine, Discover, New Republic, Mother Jones, Newsweek, Business Week, Atlantic Monthly. I mean... You've done it all. Uh, first, uh, approximately five years in this country, I was publishing 150 illustrations every year. 150 illustrations, illustrations every, every year. year. Pretty much every second day I will publish illustration. So was this work coming to you? Were you going after certain kinds of work? How uh, and, and what was it like to be doing this kind of illustration at what is probably the apex of magazine illustration in the United States? We brought something, we, when I say we, I'm talking East European artists. We, as I mentioned before, this double talk, you must have few levels of conversation. We brought that in time of Ronald Reagan right. to media so in the United States. So conceptual illustration. Which have few levels. Right. You kiss and you slap somebody in the same time and they don't know what happened to them. And they liked us because of that. But no, I, I just... I really enjoy drawing. I really enjoy what I was doing. It was like new wind under my wings, doing things for all these amazing magazines. It was genuine excitement on my side. I was smoking my two and a half packs of cigarettes every day, having a credible amount of coffee or espresso, not coffee. And that was my life, and I really like it. And then I said, enough. In what way enough? Enough being uh, in a, a political illustrator? No, 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 no. Enough, I, I was just, enough with the cigarettes? No, no. I was just illustrator, and that was bothering me. I tried. I did my best. I did everything. And then I said, now I'm going to become designer again. And they didn't want to give me jobs as a designer because, you know, suddenly illustrator, designer, confusing, who are you, and whatever. And I was lucky with Rod Rudolf Hoglund and Time Magazine, I was giving them sketches for covers, which and I didn't do. I will just give them ideas. Somebody will photograph or somebody else will paint my ideas. I will just draw. That was my sweetest jobs. 
And there are a lot of illustrations, a lot of those sketches, rather, yeah, um, but that will in, give in them, fist-to-face. But that will give them great to, see. Uh, to a creative director and they will assign other people. And then they discover I'm too expensive doing that, especially for foreign editions. And I was thinking maybe I can get cheaper if they hire me. And I said to myself, I never had the job in my life, full-time job. My first full-time job is art director of foreign edition of Time magazine. I was thinking, sound good in a bio. But also, after that credit, I'm officially designer. They cannot question me anymore. Okay. And I went there, stayed six months, became designer, and walked away. And then you went to the op-ed page. Then I was for a year at home playing because I was extremely lucky. I bought in 1990 first Macintosh 2FX. Yes. And I started to play with Mac. And I remember I was doing first Mac things in Time magazine and then later first Mac things in uh, New York Times. And uh, then New York Times offered me a job. And I was thinking, that will be nice to have in biography, and I'm never going to work for anybody else again. And I told them I'm going to stay a year and a half, and then I'm gone. We made a deal, and I became art director in New York Times, up at Pages. One of the most extraordinary things about having that position is that you not only get to do some of your own illustration for the newspaper, but then you assign illustrations to... Oh, uh, that, that's that's most amazing thing. I almost never... The only illustrations I did was those with type, messing up type on the pages. But I was in this amazing position that I can call anybody. Anybody and that, in the whole I, world. I, I'm having these long chit-chats with Maurice Sendak. You know, I'm having chit-chats with this person, that person. Then, but Well, talk about some of the people that you asked to do illustrations for you back then. I think everybody who I admired. I was using New York Times as a reason to call people. I called, for example, when I was in Time magazine, I called Uderzo. I don't know if that name means Asterix and Obelix comics because it was anniversary of French Republic. <sighs> and what is more French than Asterix and Obelix? And I called Uderzo, and he was amazed, you know, somebody wanted to hire him in America. It was beautiful. So why just a year and a half? Why didn't you want to stay there for the rest of your life? Uh, I know at first I'm going to start to repeat myself. If you stay too long on one place, become routine, and then you can forget even those beautiful, brilliant moments on the beginning, becomes job. If I'm now there, I will call somebody and tell them, not, please, can you do illustration? I'll go, you won't do illustration for me, you don't want to, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I stopped doing comics, because I got bored with my own comics, that's why, I, that's why I tried to change things, that's why I don't draw anymore, I use computer, then I now do 3D, then now again I started to do some pen and ink, because you must entertain yourself on the first place. Why do you get bored so quickly? I mean, you do this extraordinary work and then you just abandon it. I, I mean, I, I find it so interesting that you haven't drawn, and I mean, unless you're doing something now that, that nobody really knows about, you haven't done any work by hand. You've used the computer for everything since 1995. If I had your kind of talent, I don't think I'd ever stop. But once when you have talent, you can decide what to do with it. I guess so. You know, I guess that's, because, that's, for example, I did, let's say, 300 CDs for Sony Music Classical. It's always same size. It's always same shape. Because you cannot do, you know, you cannot go Stepan Sagmeister on classical music. <laughs> I love how we're using his name as I'm a purpose. term. No, no, I'm purpose <laughs> because I think, I think right. peop, you need to give credit to people. You know, because it's different ballgame, same as we spoke about Milton Glaser. You don't do Bob Dylan and Bach same way. As I was before doing record covers, and there is always that 31 centimeter size of the cover, and it's already that is limiting because you put on a table that size, and you cannot stretch a little bit more, a little bit less, and it's kind of like giving you boredom. And now, let's say I do lots of luxury hotels and restaurants. I'm going to now try on purpose to do more fashion. I'm talking designing for fashion, graphic design, and I know it's going to be same on long run, same crop, like uh, doing luxury, but at least it's slightly different in the beginning, and that is excitement. So, Mirko, you love to experiment. Exactly. And it's really, business-wise, it's extremely bad because once when you start doing something well, you just need to cash in and just do it, many of those, but it's boring. And I didn't become artist to be bored by myself. And if, I, if it's boring to me, how boring must be to people who consume that? You've also done a lot of teaching. 
And I read that you've said that you try to persuade your students to change their occupation. You think that design is pretty much a desperate profession because you sell your soul and, in fact, more or less always come across disappointments. And if you're not ready for disappointments, don't do this. Yes, I said that probably because I'm trying to send scores and scores of young, talented people in the wrong direction and keep all <laughs> jobs. Uh, but that's another story. No, because I really think somehow in 80s and 70s in this country, design is built up in this glamorous profession and cool profession, you know, and, but it's not anymore. For quite some time, design is like being plumber, except you don't get that dirty, pretty much. And you solve problems. Water is leaking, they're calling you, and you squeeze here. And if they want a little bit nicer faucet, suddenly you are like a creative director. But pretty much must work. Hot water, cold water, drainage, excellent. Because of that, if young people have expectations of glamorous life, because if you work in Rolling Stone magazine, you're not going to meet Mick Jagger. You're going to be still in cubicle with little things on the wall. You know, like guy who is hanging outside and doing nothing, have more chance to bump into Milton, go into Jagger or something than you in cubicle. But this idea of lots of money, marvelous job and whatever, that's long time gone. Only what you can have is satisfaction with your work, what you do, being happy what you do. And you cannot do absolutely nothing else. You're stuck. And would you say that that would describe you? Yeah, I'm now stuck. I'm stuck now. I'll... Stuck as a designer as an illust- and an illustrator. Yeah. Uh, if I can start again, I will build bridges. You uh, know you wouldn't. Oh, I love bridges. Oh, that's... You'd get bored. You'd be, After the bridges, then you'd be doing know, tunnels. And after tunnels, you'd be doing tunnels, buildings. Tunnels are and... not so nice, but bridges. Nobody ever built bridge because of negative reasons. Bridges, they're always connecting. Bridges, they're always positive. They look like birds caught, like second because, before they take off. It's amazing. And it's helping. It's cutting short your way. It's, everything is perfect about bridges. So, so, Mirko, why don't you want to draw by hand anymore? It's boring. It was boring to me. It doesn't mean it's, I'm not going to change my mind, but uh, you think Rubens painted all these birds and trees and every leaf on all these sets painting uh, Paradise? No, he have deal. I paint Adam and Eve, and my assistants paid rest. Is that price? You think uh, Michelangelo painted Sistine Chapel on his own? But, but now you have computer. So you just one, see it as a device one, to help you. Yeah, it's, which one is your assistant? Which one is your intern? Which one is your whatever? And it's different media. It's different, again, set of mind. You think differently, looks different. You know, it's asking me why I don't shoot still black and white movies. No, I think no, it's different but, because no, no, but, I, it's different. It, yes, I could see that you evolve as an artist, but the style of your illustration work and the style of your computer or photographic illustration, while they still are heavily influenced by conceptual ideas, the style is very, very different. And and Aaron, as, as the former editor-in-chief of Print Magazine and as somebody that's worked quite a lot with Mirko, what would you say the biggest difference is between the hand-done work and the work that's done on the computer that, that you can evaluate? I think I identify with Mirko and his his desire to constantly change. I think we share either the short attention span or the horror that you need to put yourself in to feel something or the drug that you feel when you're in something new and you're over your head and you've never tried it before. I, I, so I understand more, I think, where he's coming from. If you look at the work, it's vastly different. I would not even say you could even say it's the same artist. And I think that's what he loves. And I actually think that's what I love, that it's reinterpreting yourself and your, and your style and your expression over and over and over. So you don't get bored and no one gets bored of you. I don't, he might be more afraid that people get bored of him than he would get bored of himself. I don't know. That's one idea. But uh, it's vastly different. And I think that gives him the opportunity to be different. And that's really important to Mirko. And I value that in, in his work. It's really funny. It reminds me 
of a live Joni Mitchell performance where she was chastising the audience saying, you know, no one ever asked Van Gogh to paint Story, Story Night again when I guess they were asking her to sing some of her older hits. But I guess as as somebody that really, really enjoys those old hits, and I'm not just talking about Joni Mitchell here, I'm talking about the beautiful, incredibly derived uh, hand illustration that... I mean, I see your point, but I, but I you see, one thing, but one ask thing, about it. One thing didn't change. What is that? My way of thinking. Okay. That's, Talk about that a little that, bit. That is what I would like to be able to change, but I cannot. That's harder than style because I always end up on similar places. I just did the illustration for New York Times with rabbit. doesn't mean nothing. It's just a rabbit with glasses. And I was laughing like crazy and going around the illustration thinking, this is not enough. No, no, this cannot work. What, what, rabbit with glasses. White rabbit with like, what, what, so what does this mean? So how do you mean? go about doing that? How do you, how do you create? Is it, is it a three-dimensional yeah, rabbit? Yeah, it's 3D. So it's talk about Maya. how you do that because I look at this work and I'm like, how is it possible I, I, I that this I don't do that anymore. This? I don't do that anymore. <laughs> well, I yesterday. When you were doing no, it, no, no, no. I have do somebody it? doing it for me. Oh, so you're art directing. Yes, and I have somebody doing. Her name is Lauren DiNapoli. And we go back and forth, and I'm art directing, moving lights, uh, moving, changing textures and whatever. And we are now working together for eight years. She knows how I'm thinking. We had one case where I was stuck in some beautiful island somewhere there because of some snowstorm in the United States. And I didn't have fax machine. I didn't have computer. I told her illustration over telephone. And she did an amazing job. And I came in the United States and was printed illustration, which and I told over telephone. Wow. Because I told her, light like we use in this illustration, you're going to use texture, what you did here, you're going to put the, I just combined few illustrations for her to get what I want, but idea was important. So that's really what you're interested yes, most um, in. Yes, and as I said, I, I still, I have for a year now, set of color pencils, which one is waiting for me. What, that, what kind of colored pencils? They're all like mm-hmm. one big set, lots of colors, and I'm going to just sit one day and start to do colored pencil illustrations. Call me the second <laughs> that you do that. Aaron, thank you for bringing this magnificent book to the United States and Mirko. I would just like to really to thank to Aaron. I think he didn't know what he decided to do, but he did it, and it's, it's, uh, I'm fascinated he did it. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica, and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.